I'm going to go find other authors like myself. So me being a black man writing a kid's book, like already there's such a small percentage of black men who just write children's books that it's almost like not relevant statistically. Um, so I was like, what if I just found other underrepresented folks like myself and who didn't, who didn't have to have a writing background? Like I don't have a writing background, but who had something to say. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. I hope that today's conversation will help you give more dams in your world today, wherever you may be. I have a very special guest to introduce to you today. Jelani Memory is a black entrepreneur, thinker, learner, and a very curious human. And he gives so many dams, as you're about to hear. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife and six kids. He co-founded Circle, a product that helps parents monitor and limit online time, site visits, and app usage. It's a wonderful product. We've used it in the past. And they partnered with Disney a few years ago to get it into many more homes. And now it's called Circle with Disney. Wonderful company. You should check it out. He also co-founded A Kid's Book About, a company that creates books that treat kids like they are smart and speaks to them straightforwardly and honestly about topics like racism, body image, divorce, failure, bullying, empathy, creativity, disabilities, and so many other topics. I love, love, love this company. I have three kids. We speak to them very straightforwardly and honestly, and I love that this company is doing the same. I know you're going to love them as well. During our chat, we talk about living in Portland as a black man, raising children in a blended family, the two companies he has started, how he is giving a damn as an entrepreneur, and so much more. You're going to love getting to know Jelani in the next few minutes. But before we jump into the conversation, I want to give a huge shout out to this week's sponsor, RedCap, a fantastic company that makes workwear and uniforms. Not only is RedCap a Nashville-based company, which I love because I live here, but they champion the men and women out there who are committed to making our communities thrive. Everything they make from work shirts to coveralls is crafted with purpose and on purpose. They are a no bullshit company. What you see is what you get and what you're getting with RedCap is a group of people who genuinely give a damn about work and a life done right. So from now until July 31, you're running out of time, friends. We've been doing this for a few weeks and you're running out of time. From now until July 31, you can get 20% off your first purchase at redcap.com when you use the promo code GIVEADAM. That's redcap.com, promo code GIVEADAM. From now until July 31, 20% off. I also worked with them last month to interview some amazing damn givers all around the country that are beautifully contributing to their communities during this global pandemic. You can see that series. It's called From the Front Lines. You can see those interviews and learn more about these amazing people by going to redcap.com forward slash community. Go check it out. Okay, let's get started, shall we? As always, my email is hello at letsgiveadam.com. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. And here's my conversation with the fantastically fascinating Jelani Memory. Let's go. Jelani Memory, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm excited to be here. We have been trying to get this on the the books. Uh, that's not nobody says that today because we don't write our schedule on <laughs> books. But we tried to get those books for quite a while, and here we are. We're finally doing it. Us not doing this until this point is totally my fault. I have uh, an, an overwhelming amount of amazing people that I get to talk to, and scheduling them, especially during this season. It's been incredibly hard trying to make everything work. So thank you for your patience because I'm real excited to get to share who you are and what you do with mm. the Let's Give a Damn family today. I'm, I've been, you know, uh, you remember us meeting, right? You know that we oh, met, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. 100%. Well, we, 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 there's like a six-year gap in there that we didn't really yeah. talk or five years. <laughs> but, you know, you and I met back in Portland a few years ago. A friend of ours was working, you know, uh, with you. And we met and we're going to talk. Is it, is it okay if we talk a little bit about that company as well? Oh yeah, of course. Perfect. Of course. I didn't know if, I don't know if because it had been sold, if there's anything you can and cannot say, but no, I'm no, so no. excited about that. It's all for game. Good. That, <laughs> that company and product was amazing as well. So you, I, we, we have a lot to learn from you. You're definitely a doer. You're a mover. You're a shaker. And I'm thrilled to have you here today. Let's start with, uh, your name isn't just Jelani Memory. First of all, it's a, that's a rad name. Mm. Uh, but You've it's not just research. Jelani Memory, right? 
<laughs> it's not just Jelani Memory. So my full name is Ancoma Chioki Jelani Memory, um, which then uh, proceeds to have everyone ask me, where are you from? <laughs> I yeah, say, right. Portland, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a West African uh, collection of names uh, minus memory. And, Jel- uh, and Jelani means uh, mighty. And Koma means um, last born child. And Chioki means God's gift. Mm. I love meaning-filled names. Nothing against kind of Western white Americans who name their kids, <laughs> you know, Chad and Julie sure. and, you know, Karen and Sarah. Like, the, you know, it's kind of like, oh, that sounded right. Like, they looked like a Chad, right? Or whatever. Sure. I, my wife and I put, you know, tons of time and thought into our kids' names. By our eldest daughter was uh, Solace. Mm-hmm. Solace India May. And the solace was because we had a failed, a pretty, pretty traumatic failed pregnancy and then a failed adoption mm-hmm. before we had her. And solace was a kind of a variation of the word solace, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a comfort in troubled times. And yeah. we were just very intentional. And the kids, it's funny now that they're, you know, uh, five, seven, and eight, we can see how oddly enough in the kind of the way the universe works they match up so much with their name and they're kind of like, they're kind of embodying who they are. Bell, Scarlett Amore, Roman, August Clark, like they, every name, every part of their name has sure. a ton of meaning. So I love that, um, that your parents kind of thought through that as well. Yeah. You know? you know, I found not just with my name, but with others' names, I do believe there is some sort of prophetic quality to it. It's hard to describe, but somehow somebody becomes inextricably linked to what their name is, which I think makes it all the more powerful when someone decides to change their name is, is they intuitively understand that they are, they are creating a new future for themselves or a new identity by changing their name. And I, I think names are really important. And it's funny, you know, I always get asked, well, is, is Jelani the easier name to say? Is that why you go by? And I go, I've always gone by Jelani. I, everybody in my family goes by their middle name. I have no idea why, wow. but it's what we go by. Yeah. I just, uh, a few, few weeks ago, I interviewed Charles Robinson. He um, is a wonderful, wonderful man. And he and his family are amazing. He started a cigar company to fund his nonprofit. Mm. And they're really amazing cigars. I'm a huge cigar connoisseur. Um, and he is from the Choctaw tribe. They, he and his family are Native American. And she is a barefoot tribe, I think, from up in Canada. Anyway, all of their kids' names as well. You know, mm. and he, he actually named, they're, they're, making, they're right now making their fourth cigar in the first three named after three of his kids. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I'm pretty, Nanaya is Peace. And uh, I forget the middle one, damn it. But the mm-hmm. other, then Tash, Tashka is, means warrior or warrior spirit. That's their son. And it's just really cool. I really love, yeah. I really love that the time and intentionality that's put into the name. So thank you for explaining your full name. <laughs> no but problem. We'll, we'll go with Jelani today. I love, yeah. I, love, I love that name as well. How are you? I mean, because, and I want to give some context to the how are you. You're a black man living in America during a really uh, interesting, to say the least, time, you know, not just from a pandemic standpoint as an entrepreneur and a father and a husband and all that, but I mean, just the racial tension right now, uh, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McClain, Rayshard Brooks, Brooks, Brianna Taylor. I mean, we could go on. Those are just, those aren't from years ago. Those are in the last couple of months. And I must note that those are the ones that we've captured on camera. Those are the ones that we know about, et cetera. Sure. There's been so many others. And, you know, there's been protests and rioting and looting in your own city. There's been I mean, just upheaval and, un, and up, you know, unrest. And it's been wild. It's been wild. So how are you doing? Yeah, you know, that answer has been different across the last 45 days or so um, each day. Uh, you know, the ups, the downs, uh, all over the place. But as I sit here today, you know, before we hopped on, I, I said I was tired, and that's true. I'm very tired. One, because my wife and I just bought our first house. Um, mm, congrats! Two, because I have six kids, um, and three, because I'm 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 running a company. Uh, so those are actually the big reasons why I'm tired. Um, but I find right now, if if I step back enough, I I think it's a remarkable time 
to be a black man in America. And what I mean by that is we are living through what arguably is the largest, maybe most significant civil rights movement ever in our country. Mm-hmm. And that um, I don't want to sleep through. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I, I want to stay vigilant. I want to stay present. I want to, I want to be that thing that I'll have wish I said I was 30 years from now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think we all have this idea that if we were, you know, back in the days of King and Malcolm X, we would have marched. We would have said stuff. We would have signed petitions. We, we would have done all those things. And I think the reality is, is we would have found all sorts of caveats of why not to show up? Why not to mm. do things? Why not to say anything? Because, 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 whatever the reasons were. And yet in hindsight, the good guys are so obvious and the bad guys are obvious and what was right is really obvious and what was wrong was really obvious. And I think it's, it's really apropos being on the Let's Give a Damn podcast is, is a lot of my life right now is, is making sure that I give a damn every single day. Mm. And forcing is a, is, a, is a strong word, but encouraging those around me to to reckon with whether they're giving a damn or not as well. Um, and uh, I, I've had the privilege and the honor to get to share my story quite a bit because of my book, a kid's book about racism mm-hmm. um, and my, my experience as, you know, black man in America um, with white kids and black kids with, you know, a white mom and a black dad growing up in the whitest big city in America. is just sort of this really unique position that I've been put in. And, and for me, um, I see extraordinary change on the horizon mm. as a possibility. And, I, and I'll say like, that makes me hopeful that change is even possible um, because I, I do not think it was possible before. Like something is happening now. And I think it's a confluence of everything. COVID-19, the technology that's captured all these brutal killings and murders and, and this sort of empty uh, emptiness of willing to tolerate more and the grief that we're all experiencing because we can't go out and distract ourselves. It's all sort of colliding in this amazing moment where people who otherwise would have sat on the sidelines and gave all sorts of excuses are now stepping into the game. And uh, it's exciting. Really. It's exciting. Um, uh, That doesn't mean the work's easy. That doesn't mean that it's not tiring. And that doesn't mean that things won't go back right where they were before. And look, I've experienced more racism in the last 30 days than I've experienced maybe the whole, <laughs> like the whole totality of my life leading up to this moment. So the, the aggression, the hatred, the vitriol is, is stepping up um, to sort of match where the movement is. And yet I, I see the movement being all the more strong. I see the movement being all the more meaningful uh, to, to push for change. I love that attitude and I 100% agree. I think people were not good students of history. And so even those that are on the right side, air quotes, you know, those that are fighting for equity, justice, change, peace, love, all of those things that we need and crave and want right now during this season, even those people, which are a lot of like millennials and like they're younger people, they haven't done their homework enough to know that every real lasting change, every revolution, all of these things that have taken place throughout history, not just American history, world history, like throughout time, they all come with hard shit. Like you almost can't have, there's no such thing as a peaceful because humans will ultimately leaders and followers alike will look out for their own. They're going to go, you're going to work in their best interest. They're going to, you know, they have all of their, their baggage and their biases and they, they grow up maybe as racists or whatever. And they're going to, so to change, to make these changes, whether it's right now, this kind of race, this, uh, this racial change that we have to make and mm-hmm. this, this, what, you know, whether it looks like defunding the police or whatever it looks like, the changes that are to come cannot come without some upheaval and unrest. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't think so. Like yeah. because for, you know, what, what, you know, these people that that are are getting on the TV and getting on social media saying, you know, absolutely no to rioting and looting. And I'm not, I I I am not out there doing that, but I understand sure. it fully. I understand because these people are saying, well, you had all the, I mean, you had years and decades to change and you haven't. Sure. 
So we have to take things up a notch, right? And so all of the craziness, all that to say, all of the craziness does not, it's hard and it breaks my heart each and every day, but it actually gives me hope because it, it, it takes these kind of revolutionary you know, buildings being toppled down. I mean, again, think throughout history, the, the walls that have had to come down, the buildings that have had to come down, the administrations that have had to come down in order for us to see lasting change, right? Yeah. I think that's happening right now. It might not always look pretty and not everything is going to be done well in that process, but I think the outcome is going to be, I hope, a more just, equitable society for more people than before. Maybe not everybody because we're humans and we are with thick skulls and we don't learn well, but for more people than before. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think it's not just about moving the needle. I think often the move, the needle can't move without some force. And, and often it, it usually takes a, like a whole sort of sea change, right? It moves significantly and then it sort of freezes again. And then it, it requires more learning, more knowledge, more, more movement later very often. Um, you know, I, th- I think what was achieved by the slaves being freed was, 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 was one movement and what was mm. achieved with the civil rights movement was another movement, right? But it was never all the way. And, and by no means do I feel like this movement now will get us there, but it'll get us closer. And, yeah. and, and, and even, you know, in, in my experience, the conversations that I'm having now are just fundamentally different than the ones I was having before. I mean, before Absolutely. it was such a closed door. Now, now, granted, some of the conversations I engage with, I realize people like, they don't even have the context to under, like the, the words we're using literally mean different things. Um, and so I'll talk about systemic injustice or, or racism or, or uh, you know, inequality. And it's, and it's like I'm speaking a whole different language because I actually believe it actually is a whole different language. It's a whole different life experience. And it, it meets a wall and very well-meaning people will say all the wrong and, and hurtful things. But there's this other group of people that are now like something cracked open. You know, I even want to say like for my wife, something more cracked open. She's like, I just didn't know. Mm. She's like, I see just a little bit of it now. And I'm, I'm heartbroken. I said, good, be heartbroken for like yep. 10 minutes. Now move to, it's not about you. Yeah. Right. And that's good. And still observe and still see and still recognize and start to grow in that understanding you know, every time she's like, did you know? And I was like, yeah, honey, I knew. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, this yeah. is new. This is not new for me. This yeah. is not my first time seeing that. This is not my first time realizing that. Um, you know, if you can't tell my wife is white. Um, and, and to some extent, you know, I do not blame her. She never had a shot. Yeah. You know, you grow up in a very white state that has incredibly racist roots, you know, uh, with your white family, uh, secluded in a white community, you know, at an all white school with one brown kid. I mean, you just never have a shot, right? And so the work that takes to undo that, I, I, I recognize the difficulty in that. And yet it is so important and absolutely required, um, not for me, the black person necessarily, but for us as a society, to be a just and equitable and fair society, which I yeah. think everybody says, oh, I, I love that. I, I want that. Yeah. Just like everybody would say, oh, well, I'm not racist. It's like, that doesn't mean you don't do racist things like yeah. all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I love what you just said about not just your wife. This is the majority of, of white Western, you know, Americans, right? Sure. Is this past generation did a horrible job. Our parents did a horrible yeah. job doing the opposite of what you're doing. This is why the work that you're doing is so important and the mm. work that you know my wife and I are doing with our kids and that a lot of uh, people our age are trying to do with our kids, right? Is because so many, pe- so many kids today, not just the past generation, so many kids today don't have a shot mm. because the parents are doing a piss poor job putting the right things in yeah. front of the children, right? Yeah. They're letting the kids just be, they just exist. Whatever you want to do, you want to be on TikTok all day, you want to be in front of video games, you want to watch TV, whatever you want to put in front of you yourself, go for it. Versus the parent saying, you know, whether it's a parent, caretaker, guardian, whatever, whatever the situation is, sure. being so incredibly intentional about it. The, even my parents, I grew up in Guat, I, I had a much better shot than many others. 
where I grew up in Guatemala. My parents were uh, missionaries. And so I spent, you know, nine, 10 years in Guatemala. Then I traveled and that caused me to have a big enough worldview that I spent the next six years traveling the world. So it did get me on, on the way. But yeah. Most of their parenting, I love my parents to death, but most of their parenting <laughs> wasn't very actively like, hey, they actually were we were part of this like super fundamentalist Christian circle at the time. And it was, Hey, stay away from all those things. We don't talk yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, I literally, my parents were, are an interracial couple. He's Guatemalan. She's, you know, American from New York. And we were taught growing up that you don't like interracial marriage is not okay with God. Mm. Like they were an interracial couple. Yeah. And they taught us that's not okay. You know, because you look at these really obscure, weird passages in the Bible, right? And it's, yeah. it's, and if you, if you just read it as is, as if it's like a command and not sure. a horrible thing that was happening back then, sure. yeah. it's like, oh, so anyway, like, I think, I think that's why this, the work that we're going to talk about here in the next few minutes that you're doing is so incredibly important. Both the last, the, the company that I met you when mm-hmm. you were doing and the company you're doing now, both of them are so intentional. And I think the kinds of things that we have to continue doing because our kids, children are way smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. And we'll get into that here in a minute, but they are so, so smart. And we just think, well, they'll get it eventually. That's what, you know, that's what middle school, high school, college is for, for them to, no, no, no. But by the time they're eight, nine, and 10, their brains and ideas, at least a shell of an idea is fully formed. They're already, they're already set on a path, whether you know it or not. And you've already shaped so much of who they are for the rest of their lives by the time they're nine or 10. So you, yeah. you have to get them from the time that they can speak. You have to start putting good things in front of them. And I've also learned as a parent that, you know, I grew up in a fairly, you know, abusive household that is, you know, my, my parents are totally different now. Thank God. But it wasn't a good upbringing for, for you know, sure. in so many ways. And what, what, what I've learned is that my role as a parent, and maybe you've experienced this too, you got six kids. It's amazing. But is that it's not about micromanaging everything that our children do. It is about putting good things in front of them. I mean, I spend every single day. I mean, I I screw up sometimes and I get kind of micromanagey, right? And then I pull myself back. That's not my job is to tell, like dictate everything they should be doing all the time, right? It is putting good things in front of them and then pointing to those things and saying, what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about that? interact with that. Let's talk about that. And that's exactly the kind of work uh, you're doing. So real quickly, um, before we get into a kid's book about and circle, can you give like a five minute, cause you alluded to your story earlier and you've even got this, you know, amazing sure. name that is very, that is very rich with, I think kind of meaning and background in a few minutes. Can you give me some context for you know, the who, what, when, where, and why of your yeah. life, how you got to this point? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, born the youngest of, of four kids uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, to two drug-addicted parents. Um, you know, the first black person my, my mom saw was when she was 18 years old and she moved to Portland, Oregon from Bend, Oregon. So mm. just, you know, imagine that. Um, and, you know, uh, mom's got four kids with dad and, they're both on drugs and mom decides to get clean and she says, dad, you can come uh, and hang out with us, uh, you know, in our new home across town away from the drugs when you get clean and he never gets clean or at least by the time he gets clean, uh, he has no interest in joining our family. Mm. So mom raises us all on her own and, you know, working 12 hour night shifts as a nurse, uh, you know, working with really sick babies in the NICU. And then driving us kids to school and then sports and making lunches and dinners and driving to friends' house. I mean, like, you know, I did I did three sports year round, karate, like did so many sleepovers I can't even count. And and you know, my mom's like a, a superhero. Like she did she all that stuff on her on her own. She put her whole life on hold for us kids. But the house was tumultuous, you know. I, I witnessed domestic violence, uh, you know, with with my brother and sister, and experienced abuse and neglect and poverty, um, and 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 and. 
um, and was left to fend for myself uh, in a lot of respects from a parenting perspective because my mom didn't have the bandwidth emotionally, nor did she have the time to parent me. And then, you know, dad was nowhere. I saw him maybe a dozen times throughout the rest of my childhood before I was mm-hmm. 18. So you can imagine, you know, what's a, what's a 13 year old do with zero supervision and, and a desire to, um, make his own way in the world. You make a lot of mistakes. Um, but thankfully I had just a series of what I'll call my, my father figures who stepped in at different seasons of my life and were so influential in my development as a man, as, um, as a person, uh, as a brother, as uh, eventually a father. Um, and, uh, th- you know, they single-handedly, the collection of maybe 12 or 15 of them might have saved my life, you know, as I, as I grew up. Sports was my entire life growing up and art, two totally disconnected things. But, you know, my goal was either to play in the NBA or become an artist. Like that, that was it. <laughs> uh, when I realized that I was not tall enough or fast enough or could shoot well enough to be in the NBA, which by the way, I was actually a really good basketball player. Um, it just turns out you cannot teach height. Uh, it's just no, not- you cannot. Nope. <laughs> One of those things they haven't figured out with all the technology. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in my senior year. And well, let me step back a second. Uh, I have this really incredible, formative, life-changing experience where it's it's in my junior year of high school. I'm going way long on this, but it's really worth it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I'm in my junior year of high school. You know, I'm I'm arguably the most popular kid in school. I play three varsity sports. Um, I have all the friends you can ask for, and I'm depressed, unhappy, and I really hate my life. Mm. I am also incredibly smart. And uh, sort of understand that I have everything I should want, and yet I am empty inside. Why do I feel this way? And so I, I literally said to myself, like, self, you cannot be the answer. Because if you were the center of all these things, like if you were the center of the universe, um, it's all going to come crashing down because you are you're not it. You just can't possibly be it because you've, you've taken that path this whole sort of 18 years. And it hasn't worked. So I, I literally made a decision, a conscious decision to pursue something outside of myself to be my, my master, if you will, to be my ruler, to be something that was the guiding thing that I live by. And I, I chased it super hard. I looked into, you know, mysticism, world religions, you know, like, I mean, I looked into it all, something outside of myself that was greater than myself that I could chase and pursue. And, you know, I even got this little, it's just a little book um, and it's got uh, chunks of ancient scripture from each of the major world religions. So mm. the, the Tibetan book of the dead, you know, uh, the Quran, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and I found myself floundering and, and one night, you know, I got asked by a friend, Hey, I'm going to this thing tonight. You want to come? Sure. Why not? Turned out it was a young life club never heard of Young Life. I'd never been to Young Life before, but I went and I had the most incredible time I had ever had in my life. Like for the first, it was like I tasted cake for the first time having never had sugar. It was like this like exhilarating experience. And then we heard a little message from the Bible at the end about building your life on sand instead of rock and how poor, how poorly that would go. And, and I did something that was very uncharacteristic of me because I'm an introvert. Um, I went up to the speaker afterwards and I said, Hey, I really love this. Um, can we, can we learn about this more together? <laughs> can I study with you? Hmm. Um, and he was like, I think he was like, Whoa, like, yes, this is exactly how I wanted this talk to go. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and we spent the next, you know, um, eight months, um, pouring through the Bible together. And he was very gracious and kind and patient with me. And, and to be honest, um, his answers weren't always good or right, or he couldn't always satisfy all my questions. You know, I was a smart kid and I was also a a bit of a cynic, so I could poke holes in just about anything and everything, but something about the relationship and that brotherly love, that connection, that familial sort of like, he was going to be there for me. He was a person that I could count on that that held a lot of weight for me. It held a lot of weight. And in that context, learning about Jesus, learning about the gospel for the first time was tremendously impactful. So I go that summer to camp and I'm, I am ready to 
to let my life change, which I think is the best way to describe it. And I, I make a commitment at camp, which is, which is, well, I won't get into why it's funny, but um, I make what I understand is a lifetime commitment to go a different path, to literally like see that fork in the road and going, I'm going to choose that one. It's new and fresh and I don't know what's at the end of it, but I'm going to choose it. And that sends me on a completely new path in my life that, um, that is literally dominated every aspect. And I would say it affects the businesses that I build. It affects the way that I parent. It affects the friendships that I have or the people that I pursue. It affects my internal life, my external life. Um, and, you know, I, there's some irony because right now, uh, you know, the idea of being a Christian is so, uh, you know, I, it's so fraught because it's tough. It's tough. And, and what I mean by that is like the entire group of people and the many media organizations and, you know, our president and, 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 and have taken it as, as a, as a weapon to wield mm -hmm. against um, people who are black, who are Brown, who are immigrants, who are different, who are, who are poor, who are, yeah, I, I just, it's so, unimaginable and unthinkable that that my faith that the bible itself that the christian idea would ever lead anybody to do that and and yet that is i think the popular conception of it and and i i i have no shyness about proclaiming my faith um because because i want to be that example of what it actually really looks like not some sideshow but to go you know what what they're doing it's, it's actually the exact opposite, you know, and, and I find more in common often with individuals who seem so far away from it, who go, I'd never get close to anything Christian go. Actually, a lot of stuff you believe is very, it's very Jesus. Like it's, it's actually very close to his heart. I digress. So I end up at Bible college of all places, a little small school, 400 kids, um, I was going to go study industrial design uh, to do uh, uh, study uh, to make sneakers. Um, my dream was to go do sneakers with Nike, and it turns out school is way too expensive, so I ended up at Bible College. Um, I had I had four incredible years. Uh, for the first time, I wasn't playing sports, and realized all this free time I could I could go chase other stuff. So that was student government. That was starting an improv comedy troupe. That was starting a couple of businesses. Like I just realized I, I was bit with the entrepreneur bug. I just wanted to start things. Yeah. Um, spend four years there. I'm ready to finish. And a friend of mine is taking photographs at the time and, and doing quite well for himself and making some money. And I'm like, Oh, like it's artistic. It's business. It's, it's, it's pressing all the right buttons for me from an entrepreneur's perspective. So I, I, I literally buy a camera a month before I'm supposed to graduate college. And a month later, I am paying all my bills with a camera. <laughs> so I was like, wow. I guess that means I'm a photographer now. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I was okay in the beginning, but I, I loved it. It was so fun. And yeah, it went from selling stock photographs to, you know, photographing babies to, to weddings and then eventually getting to really high tier commercial stuff, Nike, Adidas, Reebok, um, and getting to, to chase and making things out of nothing. And, you know, remember when I said I wanted to be an artist, I was getting to live that out. I was getting yeah. to that artistic side of myself while embracing this new part, which was the entrepreneur part, which I had sort of cultivated in college. So I'm trying to think, well, this leads into the business. So I guess we can start talking about circle. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so let's <laughs> circle your bit, your first big, I mean, first of all, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, the, yeah. the context is super, super helpful and we could, <laughs> we could spend another hour on just your story. There's so many things there, but for the sake of time, yeah, let's jump right into circle, which is when I, yeah. So what's clear at this point, at least the thing that I want to, to, to focus yeah. on right now is you are, you seem to be good at, uh, you know, there's a lot of young people out there that kind of boast about being idea people, right? Mm. I'm, I'm an idea man. I'm an idea girl. Like I, I have, I, I have good ideas and it's like, sure, who, sure. who gives a shit? Like yeah. everybody has good. There's a million good ideas sitting around in notepads. It, that's, that's not the thing. Having ideas is nothing if you can't execute on it. Right. Right. If you can't make something out of that, that's the real skill 
that's where the rubber meets the road is like taking that idea. Sure, the idea is not nothing. You, it's, it's good. You have the idea down in a notepad or in a note or whatever. Sure. But until you actually make something out of that, which is the whole, let's, I mean, let's give a damn. It's all about getting people from feeling something sure. to action, right? Sure. People are, we are not action oriented people. We want to talk about it. We want to think about it. We want to feel it. But when it comes to acting upon it, because that's work, that's hard work. That takes time and energy and money and everything you don't have, maybe all of it yeah. there. And you have to actually do something with it. So yeah, let's yeah. jump right into that part of your life. Well, let me circle. let me address that real quick. Cause I I, I I think it's really important. I don't I don't always think it's the work part. I think we we work really hard at the things that we love. I think all the time. We do it all the time. We will stay up late and and sleep for three hours and work the next day to play a new video game. Like that's that's work like that's that's effort that's the uh, it's not insignificant but we couch it in well i just wanted to right i think the barrier between that idea and the execution of the thing is often fear sitting right in between and Mm. when we are afraid usually it's afraid of the outcome what will people think of me i think you're right you know what if i fail which then comes back to what will people think about me what will they say about me right and I realized in college, um, I don't have any of those internal mechanisms. Like for some reason, they just don't exist. Whether it was because sports and I learned how to fail again and again and again and again, because you just lose games, that's just normal. So I realized if I could just treat these like games, it's okay to lose some yeah. as long as I win some. Yeah. But for me, um, that, that sense of risk and fear, I'm never going, if this fails, people are going to think I'm stupid or dumb or bad. Yep. I go, if anything, people will think I'm courageous for trying. Like that's, yep. that's an easy leap for me to make. Yep. Same um, here. But then again, you know, like I still like anytime I have to go on stage, I get super crazy nervous and that's attached to like, Oh, like people are watching me and there's like, again, I'm an introvert. So I, it's not that I'm immune to all those things. I just think uh, when it comes to taking action on those beliefs, um, that the fear for me, I don't feel, feel it as strongly. So it enables me to do some of those things. Okay. So circle, circle, get a text message randomly from a good friend. Um, and he says, I've got an idea and I think it's, I think it's worth something worth chasing. So that ends up us spending the next three weeks over, you know, his kitchen table going, you know, how do we, how do we create the best environment for our kids with technology? We want to give them all the iPods and the iPads and the, the iMacs and the TVs and they all connect to the internet now but how do we make sure they're, they're only spending an hour on YouTube instead of six hours on YouTube, right? So we come up with this amazing little device that allows you to manage all your devices in your home without ever putting software on them um, that any parent can install and all works from your smartphone. Um, so that product was called Circle with Disney and we got to partner with Disney, which is a whole own cool story. Um, and, and me, I'm, I'm not a technology person. If anything, I'm, I'm, I'm a creative first and I'm a storyteller. And so the way that we created product was through telling ourselves stories. And that was, that was really my job was to go, what's the story of the mom or dad with their router, with their kids? What are they looking for in this moment? And we came to this idea that they're looking for peace of mind. When you see a kid on a device with that sort of look in their eye, there's a sense that they're wasting away, that they're wasting their time, that they might be on something inappropriate, that, you know, why don't they get up and go outside, right? So we wanted to give them peace of mind. So that meant visibility and what your kid was doing. That also meant the ability to step in and go, you know what, we are going to pause this and we're going to go outside. So we literally created a pause button for the internet. Um, spent seven years building that up, had the time of my life. We raised 30 million in venture capital, which sounds really cool, but it ends up being, you know, really problematic when you actually get in that position and the VCs start saying no and yes and yes and no to things. You're like, wait, who's running this company? We're no longer in charge. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Um, and, and really thankful to have learned that lesson. uh, Sure. Yeah. Quite honest, but I'm a risk taker. So I'm really good in the early stage. When you start getting as a bigger company, older, the people, the conservative people are there, the, the Harvard grads who have the MBAs are sort of going, well, you know, let's have another meeting about that. Let's make sure we get some consensus. And I'm like the guy who's like, yeah, I'm just going to go grab my laptop and do it. Yep. And then and I'm going to show you. And if I, and I might just ship it because I, because I also just might do that. Yeah. Um, that starts to play a lot 
less good um, the further you get into a company. Mm. Uh, and and I found myself being sidelined. And look, I, I don't blame anybody for sidelining me because I'm like I'm I'm like an anarchist. Uh, like I yeah. want to start stuff from nothing. And and like that doesn't work in a 60 person company where you need like process. Um, but it also is like a thing that has to work if you really want to achieve scale and growth and yep. significance. Um, I do not think brilliant ideas come by consensus or committee. Um, I think they come from people being able, willing to take a risk and having the freedom to do that. So by 2018, I'm tired, I'm burned out. We're fundraising this big $20 million round and I'm like, man, I need something outside of work. And it was the first time I'd ever sort of said that. Like, I loved work up to that point. But I was like, I'm just kind of, I'm toast right now. You said 2018, right? So two years ago? 2018, okay. yeah. So I'm like, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. I'm going to write a book. And I was like, and I, like, literally, this is still in my roadmap for life. of going, I really want to write a couple of science fiction books. Like, I've got a couple ideas. There are notepads. I just got to, like, sit down. I got to take the time. I was like, I can't do that this summer. I don't have any time. What can I do? A kid's book. I love kid's books. So I'm sitting down with my wife and I'm like, oh, like I want to write a kid's book this summer. She's like, cool, 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 cool. What's it going to be? About? And I was like, I think it's going to be about my experience growing up with a black dad and a white mom and that, that experience of being mixed. I, I go just something about mm. it seems really important. And I think it'd be a great tool because we were just about to have our, our newest son. And I knew for him, he was always going to be explaining himself from a race perspective about sort of what it meant for his skin color to be as light as it is and where are you from? Are you black? Are you white? Are you Mexican? Et cetera. So I write this little kid's book and I'm trying to find a title for it. And I'm like, oh, like, what is this actually really about? And I, I was like, this isn't really about me being mixed. This is really just about racism. Um, like that's what I kept coming back to again and again, the thing that I wanted my, my little son Solomon to have and, and, and ultimately my other kids. So, you know, I, I write it in a week and I design it and I give it a title at first, the kid's book about racism. And I'm like, that's oh, a terrible title. Like I can't call it that. And then eventually uh, I'm, I'm like, oh, well, like what's, what's the more humble version of this? The less de facto version. I was like, oh, like a kid's book about racism. A kid's book about, yeah. And, and it ends up being this nice little artifact that I'll leave behind for my six kids as a way to continue to foster that conversation around something that's important to me and affects me. And that was already an ongoing conversation in our family. So I get the book. It comes, takes like three weeks to get in the mail. I hand it to my kids. They think it's really cool, but something kind of miraculous almost happens when I show it to other adults. They're like, whoa. Yeah, sure. This is cool can I have a copy? And I was like, no, like, it's like a $25 coffee. Like it's a one-off. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'd be like, oh, ha ha ha. And then meet with somebody else. And I'd be like, oh, check out this thing I made for my kids. And like, whoa, can I have a copy? And I was like, come on. Like, and you, you have that conversation 15 times in a row. It's like, I'm starting to get annoyed at this point. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then everybody would follow it up with the same exhortation. You should think about making more on other topics. And I was like, that sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> like, like royalties, publishing, inventory. I was like, I'm already running a business. It's going quite well. And I was like, doing another one that's a terrible business model. I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Hmm. But then, you know, you go to bed at night and you're like, oh, well, like, does publishing have to be that bad? Does it have to be that stupid? Like, can it be a little different? Mm -hmm. And then for me, it always starts with lists. Like, I'll just make a list of like what's in my head and you know, I found myself at work in the middle of the day, like supposed to be like working on a project. It's like, oh, I'm making a new list now. And there was a day where I was like, okay, like if I did topics, what topics would I do? And I sat down and in a half an hour, I had a list of a hundred topics and I was like, shit, this is Here really we go. good. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I was like, half of these conversations I will never have with my kids because I don't know how to have them. I'm too afraid to have them. And I'm pretty good at having conversations with my kids, but I was like, this is like, it's too much. Yeah, sure. So I was like, damn, I got to start another business, <laughs> which led to me talking with my, my CEO and co-founder and, and the board and just going, I'm ready for my next thing. And, and I, I'd like to step away from this business and go chase it. And they were really mm. gracious to, to put me on retainer for a year. They didn't have to do that so that I could still feed my family. Let me invest on my stock on schedule. Didn't have to do that. Anytime I tell another venture capitalist that they're like, wait, they did what? Yeah, sure. No, I <laughs> they let you, they didn't that's, sue you. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not 
typical in any way. It's incredibly rare. And, and I, I set off to try and go, I'm going to build a new kind of kids book publishing company that focuses on hard topics. So racism, anxiety, depression, cancer, death, loneliness. Yeah. Body image, shame, belonging, money, failure. And so many more. Uh, And we're going to make the books in literally an eighth of the time that it takes a traditional publisher to make the books. They're going to focus on design, color, and layout as opposed to illustrations. They're going to be twice as long as a normal kid's book because mine was twice as long because I needed more time to say things. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be targeted towards five to nine. They've started school, but they, you know, by nine, they're still listening to their parents after that. So it's a little dodgy, Um, you know, before they also have their smartphone um, and parents are typically still reading with them at nighttime. And then, you know, I'm going to go find other authors like myself. So me being a black man writing a kid's book, like already there's such a small percentage of black men who just write children's books that it's almost like not relevant statistically. Um, So I was like, what have I just found other underrepresented folks like myself and who didn't, who didn't have to have a writing background. Like I don't have a writing background, but who had something to say because it was coming from a first person experience. Right. Um, and so, you know, I was able to, to set about constructing a business in the matter of eight months from sort of, you know, Genesis to, to launch. We launched with 12 books and a team of three Amazing. people with authors from, couple best-selling authors, you know, one 14-year-old girl with cerebral palsy who wrote this incredible book on bullying. And we just, <laughs> and we write all of our books in a single day. We, we literally sit with the author either in person or via Zoom and we write it in five hours. We spend, we call it our workshop method. And the idea is to give the book some urgency, some honesty, some, some rough edges, if you will, um, so that we're just talking to kids straight. They just, they're ready. They deserve it. They can handle it. And the only one in the equation that's not ready, that often can't handle it is the adult. Absolutely. They're afraid Absolutely. of what to say. They don't want to yeah. say the wrong thing. They don't want to screw up their kid, but you got to talk to your kid about some of these stuff. You know what I mean? And so that was really the, the, the genesis and the, the sort of the, the impetus behind the business. I remember getting uh, a copy of BJ Novak's book. You know, the, have you yeah, seen that one? Pictures. Yeah, oh, the, of course. Yeah. And, and Huge inspiration that, for me. Exactly. And, and you would think that kids would not, I mean, that is, that is black text on white paper, like yeah. all throughout. The kids love it. They ask oh. for it all the time. We are not giving our children enough credit in any way. I mean, just, I mean, as a parent, I constantly feel like a failure because, you know, not in a failure like I I chastise myself, but for a moment I'm thinking I need to do a much better job. The other day I'm with my kids at the park and we pass, you know, Nashville's been going through as Portland has as well, you know, tons and tons of upheaval and protests and stuff around all the things that have been happening in America. And there was this war monument and someone had spray painted silence is violence on the side of it. And she looked at it, read it, and she's seven, and she's like ridiculously smart. My kids won't mm. listen to this podcast, so I will say she is the smartest of them. <laughs> she just, she, they're, all, they're all really smart, and they all have a huge sure. worldview already, and I'm so grateful. We've, we've done some of that, and life has done some of that. Yeah. But she sees this sign, and she says, silence is violence. She goes, that means that we must stand up for ourselves and for others and do what's right mm-hmm. for our community. Wow. And I was like, shit, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take some credit for that, but I'm also going to say, I'm just going to sit for a moment and just sure. being grateful for that. Like when I was seven, I was not even living in a foreign country. Like I was not saying things like that. Yeah, I was not thinking things like that. Thankfully I got opportunities to develop in sure. that way now. And I, I think I'm much further along than most people because I've spent time in 30 countries and I've done a lot of things that most people yeah. will never do. But at seven, hell no. Like I just wasn't thinking silence, like even just processing through some adults have a problem with, like they yeah. feel that rub when you say silence, sure. silence what? Blah, blah, blah. And she just, she, she understood it. It was like a light bulb went up. Yeah. First time she had seen that phrase and she knew what it meant. She got it. And so I love the idea of books. Not that picture books are wrong. They're yeah. not bad. It's not a right or wrong thing, but we, we must give our children credit. We must yeah. give our, our children the chance to understand these complex, big topics like yeah. depression. I mean, 
body image. Like our kids need to be our, my eight-year-old daughter. She's a tremendous human being. She's wonderful. She already is thinking about body image. Yeah. Even at eight. Yeah. And it saddens me, but it also excites me that a kid's book about is a real thing yeah. in her world. Yeah. That she gets to grow up in a world where we aren't not talking about body image sure. at eight. We're going to talk about it. It's a real thing for you, Solace. Yeah. Like you, we need to talk about what you're feeling, what you're processing through already at eight years old. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, does, it does something remarkable when you, we were very strategic and with the idea of a kid's book is it's a third thing. So the kid doesn't feel lectured or talked down to by the parent. They don't feel like the parent contains all it's the good. knowledge and I'm somehow getting it. They they're co-learners alongside the parent, which then super good. This conversation, we just hear again and again, I had the most amazing conversation after I read one of your books and my kid had all these thoughts that I never knew they had. And something about the book, which I noticed with adults, actually, when I showed them my book, they would open up parts of their lives. I was like, you never told me that before and good close friends. And I realized there was something about the permission of unlocking and opening that space for my, that vulnerable space for me around racism and my identity and my skin color was doing the same thing for them. And we watch it happen again and again with kids. And actually my kids, their first instinct after reading my book was to go, can I make a book too? Which is mm. them going, I want to tell my story. So I know things about things. And one of my daughters, you know, she was like, I want to make one on divorce. I don't want, I don't want kids to not know what they're going to go through. You know, she was, she was 10 at the time mm. that, that for me, uh, our books aren't perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination, but they are new. And that I think is really important. This way of speaking straightforward to kids with the real words about a thing, not having any cruft around it is new from a children's book perspective and at least new from a collection perspective and how we're chasing it. And I'm, I'm really, and, and this is a bold statement, but I'm really trying to live into the legacy that Fred Rogers left behind Yeah. in, in giving kids the dignity that their lives are complicated and they go through real experiences and that they really do want to talk about it and they have questions, and they have thoughts about it. And, and it is no wonder to me that Fred's schooling his theological background is the same as my theological background and yep. spending time there. And I credit that, that time in college as, as a big driving force in the two businesses that I've created. And I don't think a lot of people would draw a straight line to those things. Um, and even I don't think a lot of people draw a straight line to the topics that we're addressing and the way that we're addressing with the kids book about, but I think there's a perfect straight line in that, yeah, like, our lives are complicated and they're, they're full and they're, and, 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 and I, I, I think our books are just as much for the adult as they are for the kid and helping them walk through that stuff and process that stuff and not ignore it. Right. And not just pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, and I, I, I'm really into the idea of going out and finding stories that don't get to get told and telling them in a really straightforward and honest way to both kids and grownups. And I, and I think we're, we're achieving that to, to great effect. And like, I can't tell you, like we have so many more books in the roadmap. Yeah. Like the goal is to be at 200 books by the end of next year and, and just like, keep going, like keep making really important books for kids, not that are perfect, but that open up these conversations. That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. Um, so, so much more we could talk about there, but I want to point people to a kidsbookabout.com. How many books serve? Like they can start getting, it's a subscription service, right? Or can, can they buy one-offs or, or is it the subscription box the way to go? Any and all of the above. You can buy one book. Um, you can buy three books. So you get 25% off and free shipping if you buy three books. So that's usually the way most that's customers cool. go. Yeah. We also have a subscription box and we'll send you one, two, or three books every month, every other month, or every three months, up to you. Uh, and you know, right now we have 21 books and we'll literally, the rest of the summer, we'll be adding one book a week for the rest of the summer. Um, have you know another 10 coming out before the end of the year. Um, and all in this idea of creating, you know, really important for books for kids that are challenging, that are empowering, that tackle some of the, the most important topics that they'll, they'll interact with. I love that. And you just recently uh, 
got a check from Black Founders Matter, right? I saw the news of yeah. the investment that you guys are getting from them, which I think is huge, right? Because I think you also, I was reading the piece about it and you wanted room in, you know, raising money for your company for, uh, you know, black investors, right? People yeah. of color to invest in what you did. And so it seemed like a really great marriage there where they, was it their first check that they wrote? It was their very first check. And in fact, Amazing. when Marceau was starting up the fund, I said, hey, I want you to be my first check. And it turns out they were ended up being my last check, which is a bit funny. But um, with my last business circle, we raised $30 million in venture capital. And the only black or brown person on the cap table was me. Mm. $30 million. So I was like, when I went out to raise this million, I was like, never again. Never yeah. again will that happen. And so I, I was patient and I was thoughtful. And... You know, I, I pursued certain investors because I wanted their presence on the cap table. Because here's what happens. If you're successful as a startup, um, a lot of that money goes back to your investors. Obvious, right? Um, but if those investors are the same sort of white men who have all the money, who make the more money because they're the only ones who can invest in those things because of how investing requirements are created or who runs venture capital funds, like it just creates this cycle, this loop. And I was like, I got to break that loop. Which means I got to invite people in and often this will be their first investment, right? You know, and I got some five, 10, 15K checks from black investors who it was their first check. And I was like, look, I am a slam dunk to bet on. But I go, in a lot of ways, like I want to bring you into this because I don't want to, I don't want to value create in the same way that every other startup is doing. And if I can get this going in a, in a really profound way, Hopefully there's some wealth creation for you that you can then continue to spread so that we don't just have all the same white men investing in all the same successful companies and making all the money and then throwing us some crumbs when they feel like it's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll create a diversity fund and we'll give you some, some money, but it won't be like the Facebook money. It'll just be like some other money, you know? I would like to invite you on again. We'll do another one. This, <laughs> this one was about, and here's, here's what I want to talk about is exactly what you're talking about, this being a black founder and because there's, there's, I think there's so, there's a whole other conversation we need sure. to have sure. around what it takes to start a business in America as a black man or black woman. And what, in, it's, it's probably even worse in a sense for black women oh, yeah. to start companies, oh, yeah. right? Or to be leaders in any way, in any company, yeah. right? And, and also just, because I, I think there's a whole conversation. I understand that world. I love the tech world. I love the business world. But a lot of people don't. And I think there's a lot to talk through there. Numbers, statistics, sure. and what it takes to raise money. Because people need to know, during this season in, in America, there's a lot of, it's easy to, it's easy to kind of like pat black people on the back and say, I'm so sorry for everything that's going on. We should, we should. I mean, I believe in reparations. I believe in all, like I'm all into that. Sure. But I also think we need to put, black founders and black leaders in front of people as a way to model what could be right. Sure. Like yeah, it's absolutely. shitty and there's bad things happening and we need to tackle these things head on. We need to, like, it is not the time to cower. It is not the time to pull back. And what we're trying to do for more and more people is give people the opportunity to do that X, Y, yeah. and Z, right? No, exactly. So I think exactly. And if I could, you know, leave with one parting thought, you know, I find with a lot of white people, the the instinct is to go, is to go. Oh gosh, it must be really hard for you, and to feel bad for me. And it's like I, I don't want the outcome of what's happening now for you to pity me. Like, yeah, come on, right? Like that's its own form of really sort of insidious racism that I don't want. Thousand percent, thousand percent. I want you to believe in me. I want you to see me. Right. I want you to recognize. Um, because because we've always been here and we've always been contributing and even I'll I'll say you know when often when people refer to Portland as you know a really white city they're also couching that with the idea that black people don't exist here or don't contribute here or don't have anything to offer here and I go no that's totally wrong actually it's the exact opposite um, and so for me I get to go about telling my story and having had the experiences that I've had and having had some success especially in the entrepreneurship world I get to go. I'm not just some special case, some special charity case that you give money to just because you feel bad, but because I'm building something significant. And guess what? There are other black founders like me. They just don't always get to get in the rooms or the doors mm -hmm. because the hoops that we have to jump through are so crazy just to get there. And then by the time we get there, I can't tell you how many investors were like, oh, this looks really interesting. Um, have you thought about going to an impact fund? Like that, this really seems like what's for you. And, which is like, which is code for you're running a charity, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, no, I'm not running a charity. I'm building 
what I hope is the most significant, you know, children's media business built in the last 50 years. That either is hyperbole or we'll do it, right? Um, and but don't pat me on the head, you know, don't say, yeah. you know, good job, kiddo. See me, you know, recognize me, uh, value me. And I think every other black entrepreneur, every black individual trying to do something that matters wants that, you know what mm, I'm saying? Yeah, no, I hear that. Let's do more of that later. Uh, Jelani <laughs> Memory, thank you so much. I know you've got to run, you've got a meeting with your company, with your team. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us here on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. It's so grateful to hear your story, to hear more about the work that you're doing. We're cheering for you and uh, we'll be in touch, brother. Ah, uh, thank you. That's the show today, friends. A huge thanks to Jelani for joining me on the show. And thank you for listening. Many thanks to RedCap for sponsoring this episode. You can find links and more details about this show and more about our sponsor by checking out the show notes at nicklapara.com or letsgiveadam.com. Nick Lapara, that's me, created this show. Chad Snavely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the wonderful Matter Media family. You can reach me anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'm sending so much love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe during this pandemic. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.